The 17th chapter of Matthew is where we'll be today, and I would encourage you to open your Bibles together. It's just a couple of verses that we're going to talk about today, and then at the conclusion of our time, we'll share in the communion together. The tables have been set, and you'll be ready to engage them by the time we get there. With the Lord's transformation, glorious appearance there on the mount, he and the disciples descended back to the valley And with that came a turning point in the ministry of Christ. In those final months of his ministry, Jesus is going to be less and less engaging in the crowd and more specifically engaging his disciples. He wants them to have specific truths by which will become the foundation for their teaching and the foundation for us, the church. And so it's going to be pretty intriguing as we look at those things that Christ thought was so essential that he would spend the last uh, weeks of his life sharing those things. And verse 22 of Matthew 17 is part of that, one of the great truths that are given to us in the gospel. It says in Matthew 17, verse 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And Matthew summarizes the way they were feeling at that point, saying they were greatly distressed. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us by this word. Father, we come before you and just humbly acknowledge that unless your voice is heard, there will not be truth that will be discovered in this. We pray that your spirit, who is the spirit of truth, would be very present with each of us as he takes this word and helps us to not just to understand it, but develop life from it. I pray that it would be unto the glory of Jesus, that you find us faithful to receive and walk in its truths. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I want to move three points through this service together today, and I want to just kind of build a sentence as we're going through it. And the first part of this sentence is this, that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, if you've been engaged in church life very often, you're pretty familiar with that term. It's mentioned 88 times in the New Testament. The majority of them are in the Gospels of the New Testament. In fact, I think there's only four or five times that it's mentioned outside of the four Gospels. And when it is in the epistles or the other writings, then it refers back to something that Jesus has said about himself, being the Son of Man. So this is a a big phrase for us. It's one that has a lot of meaning to it, and Jesus meant for it to be that way. It roots back to the Old Testament, the phrase does, Son of Man. In fact, if you read through Ezekiel, you'll find that God refers to Ezekiel as a Son of Man. And the reason why he's doing that is Ezekiel is receiving a lot of great divine truths from God. He's the messenger of God, and he's receiving those things. But along the way, God is just calling out to him, son of man. Literally, you are a son of man, therefore you're a man. He he wants him to understand that, and he wants other people to understand that, that Ezekiel is part of humanity. And so God is just reminding him over, over, about 90 times God calls out to Ezekiel as the son of man. So when Jesus uses that phrase, son of man, he's referring back to the same context which God referred Ezekiel as the son of man, saying Jesus is the son of man. He is man himself. He's fully 
man in the flesh. He lived as we lived in the flesh in which we live it. He was tempted in every way. The difference is Jesus didn't act in any way that was sinful. He was a man in the flesh without sin. Another context of the Old Testament that Jesus is ascribing to himself, this title, Son of Man, or phrase Son of Man, it goes back to Daniel. And Daniel sees Son of Man as something very, very different. You remember Daniel was giving these great visions of God in which you and I read and we're just intrigued by them because there's such a, a prophetic nature of it that relates to us in this age, so we're really engaged in, in Daniel's prophecies. There was one that he writes about. It was a night vision that was given to him, and he's referring to the Messiah in this prophecy, and he calls him the Son of Man. Look at this. It'll be on the screens. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. Let me pause just to remind us. Whenever we read the word behold, we're meant to pause there, to concentrate there. It isn't a hey, you should have seen this, or take a look at that. Behold is way more weighted than that. Behold is to look with intentionality, with purposefulness about it, to not rush past it, to not let it be a glance, to not even just let it be a stare, but to look with intention of meaning, purpose. What is God doing? What, what is happening here where God is revealing something? So Daniel says, behold, there appears one as a son of man, like a son of man. And, of course, he gives the description of that, saying that he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So this one, who's in the appearance of man, a son of man, comes before the ancient of days, which is God the Father. He is a timeless God. We know him to be the God of eternity, but you also ought to know him to be the God of eternity past. So he is the ancient of days, and Jesus, son of man, comes before him, and look what transpires. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So he's ascribing to the Messiah the, the lordship over this great dominion of kingdom where all peoples and all nations will submit to him as he is the one who leads in all ways. So when Jesus is using Son of Man, he, he wants us to know that he's talking about his humanity. He is, he is come in the flesh, but that he is Messiah who Daniel mentioned is the one who has dominion over all things. Remember, God says unto the day which he prescribes, he will make all the enemies of Christ the footstool of Jesus. He's the one who is Lord over all. Daniel saw that. And so when Jesus mentions himself as the Son of Man, he's letting us know that he is man in the flesh, but he is fully God in the flesh. He is the Son of Man, and he is the Son of God. And, of course, he is going to be given the kingdom and that dominion to rule that kingdom. He has already ushered in that kingdom of God in a spiritual way, and one day it is going to be physical. It will be a kingdom in which you and I will live if you have faith in God that He sent His Son who has removed your sin and credited to you His righteousness, and your life is surrendered to Him. Now, the disciples needed to know that. 
And Jesus wanted them to know that truth about him being the Son of Man. That there are going to be times that they're going to face real challenges and real difficulties, but they ought to root back to who Christ is. He is the Son of Man in both of those contexts. So Jesus has shared with them repeatedly this truth. In fact, in Matthew's gospel alone, we find three times Jesus says that he is going to be delivered over the hands of sinful men. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. He wants them to understand that truth. That's going to be the basis of their faith that God has provided through Jesus Christ, that kind of salvation. And we know they get it. Now, they don't get it today when we're reading in the context of this passage in chapter 17. And, but they're going to get it. They're, they're going to get it after the resurrection. Listen, the resurrection changes the view of everything, doesn't it? And they're going to get it even more when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within them because He's the Spirit of truth. And He reminds them of all the words of Jesus. And they, they really start to get it. And you see that in the way that the gospel account is written. John writes in his gospel account this truth. You see it in the first letters of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John understood that Jesus is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's divine. And then he goes on in that first chapter to say in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John understood that Jesus is Son of Man in the flesh, and He is Son of Man, Son of God, God in the flesh. And He wants us to get that. But as I said, they're really challenged in this section of the Scripture, greatly distressed at the words of Jesus that He says that the Son of Man would be delivered over to evil people. So that brings us to the next part of this statement. The Son of Jesus, Son of Man, delivers himself into the hands of men to be killed. Now, you and I are accustomed to this truth, that Jesus was delivered to sinful people to be killed. We're accustomed to that because we've read the Bible. When you know the rest of the story and, and you hear that, uh, that, that doesn't alarm us like it did to the disciples as they were hearing it from the mouth of Jesus. And they had a really hard time understanding it, not just because they were confused, but later we find out they actually had blind eyes to this truth. And it was only later that God opened their eyes and gave them spiritual understanding to it. In fact, we pray for that openness of sight to, to people who we share the gospel with, you, you might have people around you that you're sharing about Jesus being the Son of Man, Son of God, and they just, they just don't get it. Don't forget, be persistent, but don't forget to pray that God would open their eyes, that they would see spiritually and have ears to hear spiritually and a heart that the truth would resonate in them. Don't forget the spiritual battle that's taking place among the blindness of the world. They're blinded by the evil one to keep them from the discovery of the gospel truth. So the, the disciples just really angst about this. Matthew says they're just greatly distressed at the words of Jesus that he would be delivered to the hands of sinful people. And God understands their weakness. This is part of what I love about this narrative is that, that God is not pulling away from them because they lack in faith. In fact, what we find is God presses towards them as they lack faith. That's a great encouragement to us because you and I know faith is essential to our life, but you and I struggle 
to have good, solid, grounded faith every day of our life. There are moments that we just struggle with, with weaknesses or circumstances that come our way, and it causes us to, to have questions. Where is God in the midst of this? You know where God is? He's pressing towards you in that. The disciples were really not getting it. And on the day of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus or God sends a messenger on his behalf to the followers of Christ. And you know what he, one of the first things that he says to them? He reminds them of the words that Jesus has just said in this statement. In fact, the angel says, he is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Now we're talking about the place where we are in chapter 17. Remember when he was there with you in Galilee before he started coming towards Jerusalem to the cross? Remember what he said to you, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So you would think God would send the messenger to say, I told you so, but he doesn't do that. God lovingly presses to them in the weakness of their faith, and he just calls them to remember. Remember the words of Christ. It's part of the reason why we come together on Sundays, because we're coming together to be reminded of the words of Christ. You say, well, I can read the Bible any day of the week, any night of the week that I want to. I get that, but it's important that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves so that we might be reminded of the truth of Christ, and we might be encouraging one another to remain in that truth. So the passage reminds me that God makes provision for us to grow in our faith. So there's a distinction in this passage, though, that I want to draw your attention to. It's not just that Jesus was killed by the hands of sinful men, but that Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men. Now, that distinction helps us to see that this was, an, this was a preordained plan that had been in, put in place from eternity past. It's what we say is the... Um, it's the predetermined way of our salvation. That God has predetermined the way we would be saved. And how is that? That the Son of Man would come and He would be delivered into the hands of sinful men and He would die to be resurrected on the third day. Have you thought about predestination in that way? That the predestination is God making provision for your salvation through the cross of Calvary. Jesus wants the disciples to understand that truth. This is foreordained and predetermined by God, and Jesus is not having his life taken from him. Jesus is delivering himself to sinful people who will take his life, and at the same time, he's delivering himself to a righteous God who will see his faith and obedience and bring him back to life in the resurrection that that might be shared with us. So he's willingly laying down his life. In fact, you hear this throughout the scripture, the purposefulness of Christ. Luke chapter 9 said this way, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, we're almost in the context of that, in the narration of, of Matthew. We're almost there, not quite there. He's going to hang out in Galilee a little bit more. and We've got some great teaching that Jesus is unfolding to us in the months ahead. But soon, he, he will move his face and direct it towards Jerusalem. He's going to go up to Jerusalem so that he might be delivered to the hands of sinful men. You ever had that, my face is set kind of face? 
uh, in the 8 o'clock service, I was speaking to someone as they were leaving, and he had that look about him, like his face was set on something. I said, whoa, what's on your mind? He said, man, I can't wait to get to life group. I've got some things that I need to teach these folks in my life group hour. My mind's on that. And his face was set. There was a determined way about him to get to that place in order for him to communicate those truths. So we get that sometimes. Jesus was doing that as well. He set his face towards Jerusalem so that he might accomplish our salvation. Here's another way of looking at it. John chapter 10, verse 15. He purposed to lay down his life for his sheep. Remember what he said in the 18th verse of that chapter, that not only was he willing to lay down his life, he was doing it for purpose. That is, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Here's the way he bluntly said it. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. So the disciples are, are really having a hard time with this, this dialogue of Jesus because they couldn't get past the I'm delivering myself to the hands of sinful people and I'm going to die. They, they couldn't get on to the glory of the resurrection because they were just stammering over this truth that he, he was going to die. They didn't understand. And Mark says, not only did we not understand, we were afraid to ask him about it. So they were really tweaked out about this. They couldn't get their mind around the notion that Jesus was going to be turned over to evil men who would take his life so overwhelmed by the temporary loss that they couldn't see the eternal gain to come in that. Jesus' life is one for a purpose of being laid down so that he might pick it up. Every time you and I plant a seed, it is to remind us of that truth. The seed, dead, goes in the ground, and the purpose of it going in the ground is that it might bring forth life, come up with life, and the life would be in abundance. So that's meant to be a reminder to us with every seed that goes into the ground, and every time that shoot comes up, and every time it blossoms, and you have a multiplicity of seed, it's a reminder to us that Christ lived, that he might die, that he might raised to life again, and provide for us abundant life. It's a great truth for us. But again, the disciples are really wrestling with that. And this is a good place for us to pause and just think about our own wrestlings. Because their struggle was with the immediate, what was temporary. Hey, you, you can't get much more temporary than three days. All right, they're struggling with his death, which he said is only going to be temporary. It's only going to be for three days, not even three days. It's on the third day that he resurrects. So they're really struggling with this. And you and I have those struggles as well. We live in a world that is broken, no doubt. We live in a world that has been sin-scarred and marked, and the consequences and the judgment of that sin is prevailing in this world. So in this world, we experience a lot of heartache, don't we? A lot of hurt, a lot of broken relationships, a lot of, a lot of things that really bring calamity into our life, disease and despair and sickness and death, financial difficulties. I mean, on and on and on we go, we can see that there are great calamities in this life. And if you and I are not careful, we will only see the temporary loss and not look to the eternal gain that is to come. I can tell you for certain that Romans 8, 28 says, for those of us who are in Christ, that he works all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on in a couple of verses later to tell us what that purpose is. Ultimately, it is our glorification. In other words, that we would be like 
Christ. So in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of our disease, or even the fracturing of relationships, or the brokenness of our finances, whatever it is, in the midst of that, you and I are going to have to train ourselves to look beyond that which is temporary and ask, what is God doing that's eternal in this? What is God doing in the midst of my body? What is God doing in the midst of my emotions? What is he doing with the present financial condition that is potentially a gain for me for all eternity? See how he wants to move the disciples and us out of concentrating on the temporary to concentrate on the eternal. And he'll use every aspect of our life and the spirit to work in us to bring about those truths. I pray to God that he would give that kind of favor to us, that we would have a different perspective in life, that we would live differently. I pray that God would give us great trust and faith into that which is eternal and and have some solidity about that. I pray that we would not just press into the love of God, but that we would know no matter what is going on around us, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is eternal. I pray that God would give us a great understanding of the treasure that he is doing a work in our soul, even at the loss of substance that is temporary. I've had the honor of being around people that are in the last days, moments of their life. And for some of them, that's a rare opportunity for me to have a very candid discussion. Not everybody's comfortable with it, but some are. And I'll ask them about what they're anticipating. What are they focusing on? And there's a number of them that I walk away just greatly encouraged by their faith in Jesus Christ. Their vision is not on the sickness. Their vision is not on the death. Their vision is on this new life that is given to them in Jesus Christ. The disciples were wrestling there thinking about the death, but what they had to gain was the eternal life in the resurrection. So Jesus is trying to give them an opportunity to settle into that truth and to know what that truth means to them. And he knows that they need the assurance in that. Now think about what the disciples were probably wrestling with. I don't know this to be true, but I'm guessing they're wrestling with everything that we've been thinking and doing is about to come apart. Why, think of the things that have been done. They have been with Jesus when Jesus was feeding people. They couldn't feed like he could feed. And they have been with Jesus when he healed. And although they could heal some, they couldn't heal like Jesus. They just experienced that with a little boy who had epileptic conditions and a demon. They couldn't do anything for him. They couldn't teach like Jesus could teach. So with them hearing Jesus saying that his life is about to be turned over to evil men and he will die there, they must have thought everything is coming undone. It's unraveling. Now when you think of the things that Jesus has done, yes, he's fed people. When they were hungry, he fed them. But can I remind you, by the next meal, they're hungry again. And yes, Jesus healed people. He even raised some from the dead. But can I remind you that those who he healed and those who he raised from the dead, they got sick and they died. And yes, Jesus was a great teacher, but there is no 
great teaching that transforms without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is not coming until Jesus is dead and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. What I'm saying is Jesus didn't come to feed people so their stomachs would be well. Jesus came to be the bread of life so that their soul might be well fed and satisfied for all eternity. And Jesus did come to heal, but the healing was all temporary to move us to the point that he could gain for us a glorified body that would never be touched by any disease or death or despair or brokenness or sin and Jesus did come as a rabbi to teach us but the teaching is that he is truth and truth would be given to us by spirit and that that spirit would work in us the truth of Jesus Christ to the point that we could be gloriously saved by the word of Christ so it's for so much more and what he's wanting them to see is you don't get to the so much more until I deliver myself to men to die in order that I might be raised on the third day. That changes everything. But they were really struggling getting through to that point. Which brings me to the last of this sentence. Jesus, son of man, was delivered into the hands of men to be killed, but was resurrected by God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is really the crux of our life and belief, isn't it? I mean, everything is banked on it. The resurrection is the victorious power of God that's on full display. Uh, we might demonstrate the cross. We might present the cross like we do over to my left. But I would say we ought to demonstrate the empty tomb, the resurrection. But it's sort of hard to do that in a church, isn't it? But really the resurrection is, is the point of the crescendo of truth is like everything is validated and verified in that resurrection. All the words of the prophet come to validation when there's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All the words of Christ are validated in the resurrection. All the witnesses validated there and all the promises are completed in that resurrection. Everything just kind of hinges right there. It's the great hope for us all. And it was that way for the disciples. It was what they stated throughout the rest of their days. All the followers of Christ who saw him, those 500 witnesses who saw him as a resurrected Savior, testified of that. In fact, you read in the gospel, or just beyond the gospel accounts, they say in public, and we are witnesses. Paul said the same thing. He said, I witness him. I know the glory of the resurrected Christ. I'm a witness of him. I know him in the resurrection. In fact, they went to their death stating those claims. They knew Jesus to be the one who is resurrected. Now, there's a lot of people that hold true to a lot of lies for a long time, but I don't know anybody that holds on to the truth all the way to their execution through their martyr, martyrdom and then execution. The, the followers of Christ were those. I mean, you think about all that Paul endured. He endured and suffered because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his proclamation of that truth. I'm talking about multiple beatings, stonings, imprisonments, abandonment. It just goes on and on. At some point, somebody would say, I'm going to stop repeating this lie, otherwise I'd die. You know what Paul did? Like the other followers of Christ who were witnesses of his resurrection, they stuck to the story because they knew it was true, even unto their death. It's, it's the hinge of everything that opens for all of us the truth of Christ. They went to their executions holding true to that. You, you hear it in the narrative that Paul writes for us. Like in the epistles of 1 Corinthians, this is a great truth. Uh, give us that passage. There you go in chapter 15. 
Paul testifies, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, sort of a detour here for a moment, but you can't walk away from some of those phrases in that verse because, man, that's just the encouragement for all of us, no matter what state of this life you're in, that you and I will one day be raised from the dead as Christ is raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. You know, the first fruits goes back to the, the Old Testament. There was a section of the prime section of the field that was courted off. And the priest would know that that's the choicest of the harvest that's going to be gathered. And they would gather in the first fruit and they would even present it as a wave offering to God. It's that first portion that comes into God. But there was always a faithfulness that there would be another harvest to come. There's going to be more to come. Can I remind us that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection and those who are in faith in Christ, you and I are the second harvest. You and I are the harvest to come. What Jesus has experienced in the resurrection, you and I will, who have faith that God has sent his son and given our lives to him and devotion to him. So we're the first fruits. And he says, the first fruits are for those who have fallen, excuse me, we're the second fruit of the first who have fallen asleep. That's Paul's way of stating those people who are no longer living in this world. He doesn't say that they're dead. There were people of faith who are dead. I mentioned this candor that I have with some people uh, in the last days, weeks, months that are life. For some of them, we talk very frankly about the moment that they will no longer be living in this world. And this moment of where they fall asleep, as Paul says. For some, I just have opportunity to open up the truth and say to them, can I tell you that if you're thinking about death, you're thinking about the wrong thing. And Jesus has given you life, and here's his promise to you. You'll never taste death. At the moment you breathe your last here will be the moment that you will be in the presence of Christ. You won't have to worry about the bitterness of death. It will be instantaneous for you to be in the presence of Christ Take certainty of that because you have opportunity to stare at death or you have opportunity to stare beyond what you are not going to experience into heaven. You're not going to experience death. You are going to experience the glory of heaven, the presence of Christ. Put your focus there. And there have been many a person who I've had opportunity to have that dialogue with and in the last moments of their life, you sense that they see Jesus. And they might reach out to him or their expression might change. You know what's happening? They're being ushered from this life to the life in the glory of Christ. Never taste death. That's a beautiful thing for us. So Paul goes on to write, For as by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall all be made alive. Adam and his sin brought death to us. His sin passes to us, his death passes to us, but Jesus, the second Adam, brought us life. And what a hope that is.